And if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Acts chapter 8. Got to read just a little bit of that a moment ago and uh, continue to walk through this book. And uh, yesterday I had the opportunity to do something that I've never done in my entire life. Uh, and that was go trout fishing. Uh, around these parts, not a lot of trout or, or even further south, but for the first time went trout fishing. And, uh, and so I needed evidence that I actually did catch a fish, so I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. Uh, and so I was in the boat. Some of you all may know Jason Dawkins, and he was in the boat with me, and he's like, hey, man, like, let's take a picture. And I was like, yeah, because we need the proof, right? And so, and so I get the fish, and, and, uh, and so I don't know, y'all may know this, but especially the fishermen in the house, like, the further the away you hold the fish and the closer to the camera, like the bigger the fish looks, right? And so, and so I'm, I'm taking this picture and I'm just, arms are extended as far as they can go. And I'm holding this fish. And I think I'm like this far from the camera. And he takes this picture because, again, I wanted to, to show my kiddos uh, that they could be proud of daddy for, for his big fish. The reality was it was a very little fish as I brought it closer. Like the real picture was not this kind of false representation that I'm, trying to communicate to my children. Anyway, uh, the thing is this, we know the difference between what's true and what is false. That ultimately truth is revealed always in time. And today, as we look at this text specifically, we are going to be defining true faith. This is a very personal message. Um, it's personalized to, to every person. Uh, and as hard as it is at times, I would, I would encourage you and, and challenge you to almost like pretend like you're drawing a circle around yourself and it's just you and the Lord. Because what we're going to talk about is, is very personal in that we are talking about your personal faith. And what we're going to do as we walk through this text in Acts chapter 8 is we are going to see true, what true saving faith looks like. We're going to see a picture of that. And then we're also going to see a picture of a false faith, a fruitless false faith. And we're going to do this by walking through, looking at this, uh, this table waiter that became a missionary named Philip. And so before we get there, just a little bit of context to where we're jumping in persecution on the early church is ratcheting up. In Acts chapter 2, uh, we see where Peter is full of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching the gospel. Uh, thousands respond to the gospel. But out, as he's preaching the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, that there were some who looked at him and they mocked him. They actually... Uh, uh, said he must be drunk. He, he's, he's, he's sharing Jesus and he's being mocked for his faith. Perhaps some of you here today, that there's been a time along the way, whether it's your classmates at school or somebody you work with, perhaps someone even in your own family, they have mocked you because of your faith. And as you keep walking through Acts, in Acts chapter 4, it moves from mocking and it moves to intimidation. So, so Peter and John... Uh, through faith in Christ, brought healing to this brother who was laid at this gate daily. Uh, he was at least 40 years old. We know that much. 
and everybody would pass by it for Peter and John in a great act of faith. They brought healing in the name of Jesus to this brother. His life was radically transformed. They go into the Temple Mount. The crowds come around. They're like, what is going on? What is happening? And there Peter boldly again preaches the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That salvation is only in Christ. And they are arrested. And what's the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court? They bring him in. And they, they try to intimidate them, impose their will on them, anything they can do to stop them talking about Jesus. That's Acts 4. You go into Acts 5, and now you see all of the apostles are now arrested for preaching the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And not only have they been mocked or intimidated, but now they are being physically beaten. They are being flogged for preaching Jesus. And then it doesn't stop there, it ratchets up another notch. And by Acts chapter 7, where we were at last week, we read about the first Christian martyr. And so it went from mocking to intimidation to physical flogging and now murder. They have murdered the first believer whose name was Stephen. In every effort to silence the church, it's like gasoline was being put on the, the gospel flame because the gospel just continued to burn brighter and burn farther. If you've ever tried to put out a fire by swishing it down, sometimes a spark will go and that new flame will begin. The gospel fire is moving out. And what we read in Acts 8.1 is the fulfillment of what Jesus told His disciples in Acts 1.8. He told them, and obviously they had no idea for the ride they were about to be on, right? But Jesus tells them that you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive power to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the age. And so this is exactly the fulfillment of what Jesus said was going to happen. And so the gospel up to this point has been the gospel here. It's been in the city limits. It's been in Jerusalem. But now the gospel is moving further out. We read a moment ago, Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution and that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles the book of Acts is, the, is outlined by Acts 1.8. And we see the gospel is here. The gospel's there. The gospel is going to go everywhere. And here's what I love about this text. One of the things I love about this text is he doesn't use the apostles. He doesn't use those who have walked closest with Jesus. And perhaps maybe you're seen as having more experience or more knowledge or Instead, he uses ordinary, everyday believers, which I would say the apostles were too, but sometimes we want to kind of, you know, kind of like put people at different spiritual matures. Here's the thing. The gospel is going to spread out of Jerusalem, not through the apostles, but through everyday, ordinary believers. One of those happened to be Philip, who moves from being a table waiter to a missionary. Acts chapter 6 told the story about how the church was exploding and there were, because the church was exploding, there was, there was a lot of needs and, and sometimes you, you just can't meet every need, but there was a real problem. And the problem was Hellenistic widows 
were, were being uh, overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the apostles gathered the church together. They said appoint seven people. And, and one of those was Stephen. We read about last week, the first Christian martyr. Another one is Philip. And these are men who were full of good reputation, full of the Spirit. And God is going to use them in great, great ways. And so today's text is going to help us define true faith. What does true faith look like? And we're going to see it by seeing two real life examples and learning from their examples before our eyes. One is Philip and one is a magician named Simon. And so let's look at the fruit of true faith. The, the fruit of true faith or the evidence of true faith. Verse 4 of Acts 8 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so one evidence of true saving faith is that Jesus is the hero of your life. Jesus is the hero Philip's life was wrapped up in Jesus. His life, his ministry, his identity, his vocation was wrapped up in Jesus. You get the sense of, of Philip's humble beginnings and, and, and being used mightily by the Lord. That he didn't long for recognition or accolade. Wasn't fishing for praise to, to say what a good job he was doing. That he didn't base his value on his personal success or failures, but rather he rested in his identity in Christ and being united with him and living for him and for his glory. My hunch is that Philip would resonate with what Paul would later say. I mentioned Saul, who's in Acts 8, who's there was affirming the persecution and execution of Stephen. He's radically saved. He writes Three-fourths of the New Testament. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And He gave Himself for me. Philip was completely comfortable with playing the supportive role in his life. His life was about Jesus. He was never the star. I'm so encouraged by his example because I mentioned he was, a, he was a table waiter. He was one of the first deacons. This is where we get our word deacon and the deacon ministry. We see these men who were full of faith, full of good reputation, set apart to, for the work of the ministry, particularly in this case with the widows. And, and it was this kind of, this understanding that there was no job that was too little for him. And I think that that's a, that's a great truth to be challenged with, that he was willing to serve tables. He was trusted with what some would perceive the little things and that he would be entrusted with greater things. That the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 6, 5, 6 humble yourselves before, under God's strong hand and in his own good time, he will lift you up. And you see this, this is what we see in Philip's life, this kind of Humble beginnings, and yet in his devotion to the Lord, he is calling him to a task, and he's calling him to a significant task. I heard a, a quote the other day that stuck with me, and I think it applies whether you're talking about ministry or even the secular world or whatever it is. 
you might be doing as you serve the Lord, whatever that might be. But it's this, if you, if you, if you won't do it without a title, you won't do it with a title. And so for Philip, it was never about titles. It was never about having super Christian beside his name. It was a faithful brother whose heart was rescued by the grace of God. And he never got over it. And he just poured his life into serving the Lord. When Jesus is the hero, you're going to go wherever God leads. You're going to go wherever He leads. And He goes of all places to Samaria. Now we go back and we read this Acts 1.8 and, and we can even like uh, kind of hide it so much in our heart that we can kind of, kind of like, and, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We can fire through that. But, but for a lot of folks, when it got to Samaria, especially if you had a Jewish heritage, this is going to make you pause and be like, where? Samaria? If you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus, John 4, I love Jesus. The words of Jesus, he said, I must go to Samaria because there's some history here. There's a background here. If you go back into the Old Testament, 10th century B.C., the nation of Israel was a united kingdom through the leadership of even the lack of leadership of King Saul, through King David, and through King Solomon. And it was after Solomon's reign that the kingdom divided. Ten tribes, ten, the ten northern tribes, moved to the north. And they placed a capital city called Samaria in the region of Samaria. That was the north. And two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, their tribes went south. And they were there in Jerusalem, in the land of Judea. Jerusalem is the capital city there. And it wasn't long that this massive world power called Assyria moves in and just takes over the northern kingdom. And they would take as, as prisoner and as workers, those Jews that were living there, as exiles. And what they would do is when they would take over a land, they would then take those people they capture and they would put them in, in other lands that they've captured to repopulate that area. But there would... There would typically be a remnant of some sort that would stay there. Not everybody made the trip out of exile. And so it was in that context that there were some Jews that were left there in Samaria. And over time, when the Assyrian rulers repopulated, they intermarried and they created what, what we refer to in the Bible as Samaritans. And so for Jews, they would look at this people group with prejudice they would look at them as half people they weren't pure Jews and they were looked down upon there was animosity even Nehemiah building the wall there was no Samaritans that were a part of the work and so as you can imagine as the years would roll by that animosity would just keep increasing so much so that in 303 BC the Samaritans made their own temple in a place called Mount Gerizim. But here's what I love. This place and this people that the Jews would have written off and said, uh-uh, not them, nope, nope, nope. Jesus says, I have to go there. He says, I have to go there. John 4, the compelling account of the woman at the well. She's saved. She goes into the city. I must tell everybody about this Jesus. 
We see also that Jesus healed a Samaritan leper in Luke 17. We also see in Luke 10 that Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of an incredible parable that we will read oftentimes and call it the parable of the good Samaritan. And here's what Philip says, the table waiter. He says, that's where I'm going. I almost wonder if it's like, I want to be like Jesus. I want to go to the place that nobody else perhaps wants to go. I have to go there. He wants to go to Samaria. Or excuse me, yeah, to, to the land of Samaria. And so, this I think exposes one of the, the, one of the most visible pictures of the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man. Is that any people group would view any other people group with prejudice. Or as less than. That, that they would not view every person as created in the image of God. Created Imago Dei. And we see God's heart for the world. For all people groups. Around the throne there's going to be people from every nation. And every tribe. And every tongue. God has a missionary heart. Jesus has a missionary heart. We see it all through scripture. And so this commission says, go make disciples of who? All. Everybody. 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 Verse 6 of Acts 8 says, and the crowds with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So he's preaching the gospel. It's important to remember the context and where we're at in the story is that God would, would, would affirm this gospel message with great signs and wonders, would affirm the validity of the gospel message and we see that the gospel changes lives. It always has. It always will. Jesus changes lives. The gospel has the power to give victory over sin. Victory over the strongholds in our lives. And so if we're looking at fruit. Fruit of true saving faith. One is Jesus is the hero. I'm not the hero. The second is that transformational change through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus changes lives. Is there anybody here? That would say amen to this truth. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? Anybody? He's changed my life. That's what he does. And it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, this is a statement that I say with all of the grace and truth that I can say. But it's true. If there's been no change in your life, there's been no Jesus in your life. He says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of my mentors, Johnny Hunt, says this, Jesus changes our want-tos. All right, we're, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about like having it 100% all together. We're not talking about not having struggles. We're not talking about that. But it's the base with which you operate off of. You operate with a new orientation around living and desiring to honor the Jesus who saved you and changed your life. Life And so we see this. Jesus the hero. Transformational change. Jesus changes lives. A third is we see joy. Unconditional joy. Verse 8 says there was much joy in that city. Man, that, I mean, like 
God was working, God was moving, and joy was happening. Joy has this, it's an attitude that we choose to take. And it's a, it's a gift and an attitude that believers are gifted with. And what's challenging or even sad at times is that as believers, we can lose sight of that joy. I was reading a book by a pastor. Uh, his name is Christopher Ash, and he's talking to believers. So kind of that helps with understanding this this the this this option that he gives as believers. But he says every believer has two alternatives as it relates to joy. We can enjoy the gifts or we can enjoy grace. Now, gifts are a part of his grace. All right. We enjoy all of God's grace and all of his gifts. But the challenge is when a believer loses that 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 fullness of joy, it could be that is connected to the believer focusing more on the gifts than the grace. Because if you're like me, we have these mindsets and these ideas of how everything needs to go and should go and 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 oftentimes and by often all like 100% like things aren't going to go how we think we should. Right? They should these things happen, brokenness happens in our lives, but for the believer when you choose to enjoy grace, what that does is it reminds us that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, by God's grace I have been forgiven of my sin. By God's grace, I have been adopted into the family. By God's grace, I've been accepted in the beloved. By God's grace, He has gifted me His presence, the Holy Spirit as a believer. By God's grace, He's given me a purpose that is way bigger than any purpose I could live for outside of Him. That we enjoy this grace that when this life like a vapor is up, that we will spend eternity with him. And so there's this encouragement to choose joy and enjoy his grace. And that's exactly what was happening. This was a city that was going wild because God was working in a major, major way. Jesus is the hero. Life change is happening and joy is feeling, filling the city. We see this as a as a as an evidence or a fruit of true saving faith. And now we're going to transition and we're going to see the opposite. Because everywhere that there is a work of God, everywhere there's a move of God, there is going to be opposition. We've seen it from the beginning. We've experienced perhaps even in our own lives. But verse 9 of Acts 8 says, but there was a guy. <laughs> there's a guy. There's always opposition, right? Always opposition to the work of the Lord. Verse 9 of Acts 8 says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. We hear that. I, honestly, in my, I don't even know Simon the magician, but, but I just kind of want to step away <laughs> because anybody that would claim such authority and such attention is I'm, I'm great. I'm the, I'm the, I have the power of God. I am the power of God. And the Bible says in verse 11 that they paid attention to him. Because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
And so in this text, we are introduced to what church history gives us his full name, Simon Magnus. Simon Magnus. He's the city sorcerer. He's the local magician. Uh, His testimony is one of the complete opposite of what we just read about with Philip. With Philip's testimony, Jesus is the hero. With Simon's testimony, he's the hero. That this is distinctive of of a fruitless false faith. It is all about him. He's the hero. He was deeply rooted in the, the, the spiritual darkness, forces of evil, uh, deceiving people. He had the art down pat, uh, very wicked. He was very respected, very feared by the people of Samaria. But Justin Martyr, who was a, uh, he was a, a, a philosopher, uh, church history, and he actually said that his fame had actually spread way beyond, way beyond Samaria. Because in my mind, I'm thinking kind of a local guy, and he's just kind of living life, and everybody, you know, obviously thinks he's amazing. But, but here's the thing, his fame had spread way beyond Samaria, so much so that there was a statue to him in Rome. And not only that, but like some worshipped him as a, as a god, as a, as a demigod, and and so, so with this, we, we are seeing that this brother is, uh, is, is in a very wicked, wicked place. In verse 12, the Bible says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. If you just read this quickly, you, you, you perhaps want to just stop in this moment and say, praise the Lord. Simon accepted Christ. Simon gave his heart to Jesus. Simon believed in Jesus. And, and perhaps we are tempted to just run and to celebrate this, the fact that it says that he believed. That he believed. But if we look at his life and the text that follows, we're going to see a very different story. A very different story. We have used the term that talk is cheap. And it is true. The word for believe here. The Greek word for believe. It it means two meanings. And we use it in the same way. Way number one we use the term believe. It's to acknowledge the truthfulness of a claim. You acknowledge that whatever is said. That's true. It's one thing to acknowledge a claim. But the second is that you trust it. That you don't just affirm or, 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 or claim it's true, acknowledge it's true, you actually rely on it. You place your confidence on it. You place your trust in it. You put your weight into it. There's a big difference in believing something and believing something. There's a big, big difference. One of the, the kind of the classic examples, and I'm sure that you all have, have seen this or, or seen this before somebody uses illustration, but um, this is a chair, and I'm like 100% sure that everybody in the room would acknowledge the fact that this is a chair, that all of you would say, I believe that is a chair. And so there is this, there's this mental acceptance that that is what that is. But, but everything changes when believe moves from just information To like, I'm going to put everything I have in this chair. And I'm going to rely on this chair. I'm going to put my confidence in this chair. 
I'm going to put my whole weight on this chair. And so everything changes when it goes to that's a chair to like you rest yourself in this chair. And there's a big difference. And we see this in the text is that for Simon, the magician, Simon, the, the sorcerer, like for him, it was it was information apart from transformation. It was always mental. Why? Because his life was never changed. He goes down in history as the father of the Gnostic movement. The father of heresies is what he's been referred to. And so the challenge that we must ask ourselves is, has our belief in Jesus moved further than our minds? Moved farther than our intellect? Moved farther than just to say, yeah, that's Jesus. But to say, no, I place my my confidence and I rely upon and I place my whole weight and trust in the person of Jesus. That this is faith. And for Simon, he saw the crowds, he saw the attention, and he wants in on it. He wants in on it. He says he got, he believed mentally, like fact, yeah, I believe that, but it never made it here. It says he was baptized. He got wet. I mean, he went through the motions. People can go through the motions. We go through the motions where it's completely unconnected from our hearts. Like it was all mental for him. It was information and no transformation. This is a sign of a fruitless, false faith. Jesus is the hero. True faith. I'm the hero. False faith. Information, life, change. True faith. Information and no transformation. False faith. And this sad testimony plays out. The apostles get word. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were identified in baptism. Verse 17 says, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So it could be like, hey, well, I thought the, like every believer, when they repent of their sin and accept Jesus, like they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, the Bible teaches us that is the truth of God's Word. But in Acts, it helps us to remember again to have our bearings. That this is... This is the launch of the early church. And remember where they're at. They're in Samaria. That God didn't bring Peter and John out there to give the Holy Spirit, but to witness the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. Tony Marita says it this way. He says, in this unique case of the Gospels, first going beyond the city limits, the Lord sovereignly waited to give any manifestation of the Spirit until the apostles could be there to witness it. That they could see and testify that the Samaritans received the same Holy Spirit given in Jerusalem. Bitter enemies are now brothers and sisters in Christ. This is beautiful. Bitter enemies are now brothers and sisters in Christ. I mentioned one of the marks of true saving faith is life change. If we were to go back to Luke chapter 9... We would see the disciples walking alongside Jesus on their way to Jerusalem. And they would go through Samaria. And it was as they were walking through in Luke 9 that they were looking for a place to stay. 
And the Bible teaches that they received opposition. So it wasn't just kind of Jews versus Samaritans. It was also Samaritans versus Jews. I mean, they just did not like each other. And so much so that they were refused occupation. And Peter, or excuse me, James and John are there. And here's what they said. They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> Peter and John, they are being rejected in Samaria. And here's their solution. Let's just call fire down and just like, let's just wipe this place out. They had nicknames that Jesus gave them, the sons of thunder, because of partly in part of their, their response. But, but Jesus rebuked them. And so think about it. Last time, I don't know if it was the last time they were in Samaria, but they were there. Last time they were there, they were ready to like call down fire. And now they're there to lay their hands on their new brothers and sisters in faith. And they are praying and the Holy Spirit descends and falls and indwells their new brothers and sisters in Christ. And the family of God and the kingdom continues to grow. I love it. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. A third mark that we see is a greater love for the gifts than the giver. He wants the gifts. He wants to, he wants to purchase the gifts. Is this the Holy Spirit up for sale? Because give me like some of that so I can go out and I can woo more people and win more crowds. That Simon wasn't interested in the grace of God. He wasn't interested in breaking free from sin. And sin, uh, he just, strongholds, he just wanted to, to amaze people more. And have more people ooh and ah at what he can do. And it's important for us to be reminded that God is not a rabbit's foot. And God is not a genie. But rather this brother is sitting there thinking of how he can turn the Holy Spirit into a prophet on his Dime. He is looking at the Holy Spirit as this thing. And the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the person of God. He is a he. He's not an it. And so here he goes. Verse 20 says this. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lie in this matter for your heart is not right before the Lord. May your silver perish with you. That is strong language. And it, it's almost hard for us to hear how strong it is. But kind of a literal reading in our lingo today would be something like, May your money follow you to hell because that is where you are headed. This is what Peter is sharing. This is what Peter is bringing. A strong rebuke. And there are many gifts of the Spirit. One of those is discernment. You see Peter having this gift. You think about back to Ananias and Sapphira. He could discern what was going on in their hearts. Here he discerns what's going on in Simon's heart. Some of you perhaps may be here as believers. You have the gift of discernment. Like when everybody else in the room is like everything is great. There's a, a grieving or, or a sensitivity that's in your heart. And so for Peter, he has this discernment but in grace in grace he shares this final word to Simon the magician he says this verse 22 repent 
Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. That phrase, if possible, means near certainty if an effort is made. In other words, this is kind of one more opportunity. This is another opportunity in light of the truth of the gospel, in light of the truth of Jesus Christ, another opportunity to repent and to place your faith and trust in Jesus. And for those here today, for those who are listening in, that God in His grace is extending this invitation to you. That nobody is ever too far from the grace of God. That's so encouraging. That here we see this, this wicked, this man involved with great wickedness. And yet this call to repentance. Peter says this in verse 23. He says, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. Means you're eaten up with envy. He saw Philip. He saw all the tricks. He saw all the power. He wants some of that. He was envious. He was eaten up. Peter says, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He was handcuffed to wickedness. This was all in this guy's heart. Verse 24, wrapping up, says, And Simon answered, This is the magician, not to be confused with Peter. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And here's part of the sadness is that Simon the magician still doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite get it. No one can do our repenting for us. Like, we need to pray for people. People pray for us. We pray for one another. People can pray for one another, but people can't save one another. And we are all ultimately accountable to God for our decision to repent and to believe. And what we see here in this text is two, two men. One describes a true saving faith. You see, Jesus as the hero, that's lordship. You see this transformational change. Like, I'm not saying he's perfect. Like, no, that's, we're not perfect. We talk about being works in progress all the time. But there was change. And he was sensitive and desired to change more and more into the image of God. And joy marked his life. There was much joy, much rejoicing. Even in the midst of persecution, what drove them there? Martyrdom. And they're experiencing this joy. Why? Because it's not conditional. It's based on the grace of God. And so we see this, but we see this really sad testimony of this brother that like it was so close. It was so close, yet it was all about him the whole time. And it was all mental intellect the whole time. And it was, there was never any life change that came along with his faith. We see this. He was eaten up with envy and wrongdoing. And so as we land this message, I think it, it encourages us as believers that, that the lordship of Jesus Christ is, is something that as believers we are sensitive to. And that we live for His glory and His mission as a result of the blessing of His grace. And that we would honor Him in that way. There's 
areas in our life that He wants to reveal to us through His Holy Spirit and reveal those areas that He wants us to give over to Him so that we can become more and more like Him. And perhaps circumstances have, has, circumstances have eaten your joy. Like it just wears. By God's grace, help us to enjoy the grace and not just the gifts. And it changes the whole perspective of everything. But for the one who may be here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, hear the love and the grace of God extending His gospel invitation to you again. No matter how far you think you are for Him or how bad you think you've messed up, that God's grace extends far enough for you and that you would heed these words, repent, have a change of mind, a change of direction, and receive King Jesus as Lord and find rest for your soul, forgiveness, grace, blessing, His presence, joy, purpose, eternity with Him forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for Your grace. And God, just even this morning being reminded that as believers, we, we always can choose to enjoy Your grace over the circumstances that come. And they come strong. But God, we, we, we see Your grace is enough. And even to the humble, the, Your Word says You give more grace. And so God, as a, as a body of Christ, I pray that we come together with humble hearts to to praise You for Your grace and enjoy Your grace. For those areas of our lives You want to continue to, to cultivate in our lives and maybe perhaps areas that You want to refine, chip away, mold us, God, that You find us hungry and humble. And we say, God, work. God, work. God, work. And rest in joy. Rest in enjoying the grace that no matter what, as a believer, that... Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, the encouragement today is for those who may be living apart from a relationship, perhaps could ace a Sunday school quiz or, or know some amazing facts about the Bible, perhaps even acknowledge that Jesus, yes, you are the Son of God, but it's always stayed in the mind. It's not made the journey of 18 inches from the mind to the heart, the control center of our life. And so, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. God, that your Holy Spirit would, would draw and convict and bring to light the truth of the gospel, which is you truly are the only way to be saved. And that today would mark a day of salvation through repentance, turning, and trusting you as Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. So God, we love you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your grace. And God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to wrap up this, this time of our word just in a time of response. That, that, that the longing is that we have a sensitivity to what, God, you want to do in my heart. And we realize that may look a lot of different ways, but just know just a moment as we sing brother bill will be down here i'll be here if we can pray over you encourage you perhaps you want to pray on the altar perhaps you see somebody on the 
another aisle that you just need to put your arm around, say, let's pray together. Like whatever that might be, or, may, or maybe it's just the quietness of your heart. But don't let the moment pass that God is desiring to do a fresh work in your heart. So let's give the Lord this time.